Are you tired of putting yourself last? Of taking care of everybody else's needs and powering through to meet the next set of impossible standards? In our fast-paced society, we lose touch with our intrinsic worth, with the ability to value ourselves for who we are right now. Instead of living life exhausted, frustrated, and disconnected from your authentic self, maybe it's time to put yourself back in the life you've worked so hard to create. Join radio host and life choreographer Laura Cheadle and learn how to build your dreams and live your sparkle using the five steps of flaunt. Find your fetish, laugh out loud, accept unconditionally, navigate the negative, and trust in your truth. Hello and welcome to Flaunt. Build your dreams and live your sparkle. I'm Laura Cheadle, and as you know, this show is about um, building your dreams and living your sparkle. And the thing is, if you're not in a good mental place, it's really hard to build your dreams or live your sparkle. Now, there's plenty of professions that are a little bit more touchy-feely, and it's okay to express your feelings, and it's okay to share with people when you're going through something difficult. But then there's other professions where that's a little bit more taboo, where, based on the profession, it's traditionally not okay to express something like, I have intense anxiety around this, or I am going through some depression, whether it's something like seasonal depression or depression related to something else or clinical depression for any reason, there's other professions where it's kind of not okay. And the legal profession historically has been one of those professions where it's difficult for practicing attorneys to come out and say, hey, I'm having a problem with alcohol abuse. I'm having problems with anxiety. The pressures of law firm life are huge and I need help. That's why when I meet somebody like today's guest, Mark Yakino, I get so excited because he is really working to chip away at that taboo. He's working to bring light and love and mental health into a profession where that typically has not been addressed. Now, Mark Yakino has had a really interesting journey in the law, and he has navigated multiple transformations with grace. He started out as a commercial and product liability lawyer, and then he morphed into e-discovery, which for those non-lawyers out there, it's electronic discovery. Instead of doing the paper, it's dealing with it online. Um, after a stint in New York, leading an e-discovery service company, he leveraged his passion for law and technology at Major Lindsay in Africa to help build a business unit that focuses on contract management programs, content automation, and alternative staffing models. Now, like he says, legal department clients often come to us. They have a burning platform and a deep business need to find ways to improve their processes and interactions with technology. Here's the piece that I absolutely love. He also hosts a podcast called Erasing the Stigma, Conversations about mental health in the legal profession. And that's what I want to dive into today. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on, and thanks for that warm and generous introduction. Oh, well, you're welcome. You know, before we get any further, I would kind of like to hear your take 
on my introduction. This show has got a lot of lawyers and non-lawyers alike. And I'm just curious kind of what you think, you know, in, in the medical field or the engineering field or the accounting field or the legal field, any professional field, um, do you feel like there's a stigma around mental health? I would for several reasons. First, the evidence and the studies that have come to light over the last few years show that there's a significant mental health issue or issues in the legal profession. And a number of the studies really focus on some of the characteristics that are not unique to the practice of law, but, care, but, but identify easily with the practice of law. The need to be strong, self-reliant, independent, to be tough, the whole stereotype of the archetype litigator that's tough as nails and relentless. And in actuality, those traits and characteristics, while they can propel you through practice for a while, also can become significant points of stress and create an environment where you just cannot function effectively because you don't have this um, sort of natural affinity to seek help or to be or to collaborate or to share because you're kind of kind of those instincts are bred out of you as you're inducted into the the law firm world and as as a result lawyers don't want to show vulnerability they don't want to show weakness they don't want to show the need for community because it's kind of um counterintuitive to what they've been programmed to believe is the archetype lawyer Totally makes sense because, and some of this is stereotypical as well, but many people think of the bulldog attorney and you do want somebody who is tough and aggressive and who won't roll over and who will advocate zealously for your rights. But you're right. If somebody's advocating zealously for your rights, you don't necessarily think of them as also being vulnerable and being human. But at the same time, that is a very stressful way of living and doing business. And when we're under stress, we don't function as effectively or as efficiently because of the whole fight, flight, freeze. So, yeah. Ultimately, it's it, ultimately it's an unsustainable way to thrive because studies show that one of the single best ingredients to being a happy, healthy, high-performing individual is sleep. What is the mythic strong lawyer, the one who can work all night, day over day over day to deliver service? Studies show that when you are able to not multitask, but focus on one thing at a time, you're more effective. When you're able to turn off digital distractions and do deep work, you're more effective. When you're able to take care of your body, you're more effective. All of those things are true, but still, even today, the systemic view of what is a high-functioning, hungry attorney who wants to make it and, and be the best is counterintuitive to all those things. They, they, they're just not culturally compatible you know, under the sort of existing stereotypes. Now it's changing, but it's changing really slowly. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Some of these things that you're talking about, absolutely, I see 
reflecting in the legal profession, but some of it is just corporate America as well. If you want to succeed, you work harder, you run faster, and you jump higher. And yes, there has been a lot of change in the workforce, but it is slow going. How does something like that get tackled? How do people like you and I, because I, th I think everybody understands that. Everybody understands the research and they are still pressured to bill hours. So how do people like you and I start creating a change? How do people who are practicing law right now, maybe as a young associate who does want to succeed, how do they step forward and help create that change? I think there's a, a lot of answers to that question, but I would say from my view, the first and foremost answer is continuing to develop a growing chorus of voices who shed light on the issue. Because it's through the critical mass of that conversation that beliefs begin to change that firm leaders begin to understand that a mentally healthy environment actually will help their bottom line rather than hurt their bottom line. That legal departments will understand that fresh and rested and healthy employees will make the law department a better servant to their clients. I think it's one, continuing to grow the body of, of, of communicators to continue to get people to share their truths and also, it's really advocacy, you know, on a number of different levels, states with and counties with progressive bar associations offer a lot of resources available to lawyers who wouldn't otherwise have them. In Western New York, the, the Bar Association has done a remarkable number of things to provide support for lawyers who have substance abuse or, or mental health issues that they're dealing with. Whereas a lot of big firms are hiring wellness and well-being coordinators and investing a lot in programs, the huge majority of lawyers aren't really in big law, despite kind of the way that the trade quest plays it. And so advocacy at local levels to create resources available to the community, as opposed to specifically to each firm, I think is a, is a critical step. And there are some, some people like Dan Lukasek in, in Western New York who are doing some really compelling things that way. Hmm. That makes sense. So here's a question for you too, because I have heard about some of these progressive companies, again, corporate, not legal specific, but they will have things like meditation rooms and they will have these resources available for their employees. The employees don't take advantage of it because they don't want to be seen as that person. They don't want to be seen as woo-woo freaky meditator or they don't want to be seen as weak. Um, do you think that's a problem in the legal field as well? Oh yes. In fact, in my podcast, Racing the Stigma, I recently talked to the director of well-being and coaching in a very large firm who gave me feedback similar to what I've received with people from other firms is that those programs are really good, but typically the staff is more likely to avail themselves of it than the lawyers. Mm -hmm. Now, part of, part of the initiative they're taking is to make things like Calm, the meditation app, available on each lawyer's desktop, each everybody's desktop, so that if they want to meditate, they can do it in the privacy of their own office or 
offering one-on-one coaching so that they can provide these services discreetly, but still, you know, multiple folks within firms that offer these progressive programs say the staff takes better advantage of the programs than the lawyers. The younger lawyers take more advantage of the program than older lawyers. Right. So, so it's definitely having, it's like having a great gym in your, your apartment, but not wanting to work out in it because the walls are glass and people can see you and you're self-conscious and it's kind of the same thing. Yes. No, I, and, and I had to laugh over that too, because teaching fitness has always been my hobby job because I love fitness and it, it burns stress and it makes me feel really, really good. And if I had a dollar for every client or class participant that said, I can't wait to start working out, but first I'm going to lose 10 pounds. So I'm not embarrassed at the gym. I would be rich. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's natural, right? If you are trying to solve for a problem or you have a problem that embarrasses you, whether it's, you know, a body image problem or it's an emotional health and well-being issue, you know, the, the tendency to want to be seen in public dealing with that problem, it, it, you're just reflexively vulnerable. And, and, and most people or many people don't want to feel that way. Mm-hmm. So what we can do as advocates in the community is get is shed light, tell our own stories and help people take that first step forward so that they overcome that that perception that's keeping them from taking positive actions to improve how they feel, how they look, uh, how they interact with their families, and even how they do their job. Right, right. And that's what I like so much about the title of your podcast, Erasing the Stigma, because it is a stigma, yet most people have or currently have some type of mental health challenge. It's as common as the common cold, but there's no stigma around the common cold. So I, I just appreciate and kudos to you just for having the title of that podcast. Yeah, we really worked hard when we were, were thinking through the podcast as to what the title should be. And erasing the stigma just seemed like a natural fit. And it's and 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 it's not you know a unique or exotic title because the theme of erasing the stigma is working its way through both the legal profession and, and mental health advocacy everywhere. But by, you know, titling it Erasing the Stigma Conversations about Mental Health in the Legal Profession, we knew we could instantly communicate what the purpose and focus of this podcast is. And we framed it around mental health, not mental illness in the legal profession because yes. It's very easy to focus on the illness part and ignore the the more holistic question of well-being, that overall mental health not only helps you fight and, and, and get treatment for mental illness, but overall mental health just makes you the best person you can be. Right. You know, yes, 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 and yes. The whole goal of my podcast is like I said at the beginning, building your dreams and living your sparkle. And for me, sparkle is just defined as that thing that gets you up in the morning, that thing that you're passionate about, that you're enthusiastic about, because life is 
I mean, our life is our life. And yes, we have to work. And yes, there's unsavory things that we have to deal with. But basically, the bottom line is we should enjoy our lives. Life shouldn't be miserable. And going to law school is not an easy endeavor. You know, I spent three years of my life and a lot of money in law school. And of course, there were things that I enjoyed about it, but it was difficult. You know, for me personally, I passed the bar in California and Colorado. A lot of the people out there, you know, same thing. There's multiple bar exams. There's multiple dollars being spent. And you put a lot into the profession because you love it, because you're passionate about advocacy or justice or giving a voice to a disenfranchised population or whatever the reason is that you went to law school. People go to law school because it's a passion, because it's a drive. It's not just that one day you say, oh yeah, I think I'm gonna be a lawyer, and hey, yeah, this isn't that much fun anymore, I'm going to quit. So that's I like the intersection of your work and my work. Yes, let's talk about it so you can be a better lawyer, so you can improve the bottom line for your firm or your company, but also with my work, and so you can enjoy yourself because you worked hard to get here. Yeah, I think the the phrase that always comes to mind for me is joylessness is contagious. So if you're not joyful in your work, you're not going to be joyful generally. You're not going to be joyful at home. There's the myth that you can come home and, and compartmentalize um, a job that has created stress and aggravation for you and, and be a great father and great husband and no. really enjoy your time outside of work. It's just that. It's a myth. And the idea that you can help mentor younger lawyers or inspire people or work with them or bring the best out of them when you're, when you're kind of weighed down by this sense of joylessness is also a myth. Joylessness is contagious, and, it, and, it, and most things that are contagious just generally aren't good for you or anyone else. Mm-hmm. That's a great phrase. I, I absolutely think that's true. In my own experience, I used to say it was cancerous. It starts with one dissatisfied person who then complains to another dissatisfied person, and then they build on each other's dissatisfaction, and Pretty soon, it's the whole firm or it's the whole department that's not satisfied. And no, you're right. You can't be miserable for nine or 10 hours a day at work, fight the traffic getting to and from work and be like, yeah, I'm ready to live now. No, it's impossible. And that's why it's so necessary for us to feed this dialogue. Because in order to really make changes, you have to have dialogue around the meaning of work the ability to take joy in your work and the ability to manage your work in a way that not only takes care of your clients, but also takes care of you, which Mm -hmm. is I think most important so that you can take care of your clients and your family. And I think that it's, you know, our job is to turn on the faucet of dialogue around this issue Mm -hmm. and to normalize. There's a great, there's a great um, psychologist at the University of British Columbia, Dr. John Ogrodnichuk, who says that one of the first things they do with men suffering from depression, because there's a lot of issues with men getting availing themselves of mental health treatment, is to normalize depression, to put it in the context of there are a lot of high productive people, men and women, who have depression. Statistically, mm-hmm. it is highly likely that 
um, a very large number of the general population will have depression or some mental illness. You are not an outlier. And I think our job as advocates is to continually talk about the issue so that it becomes clear that if you have an issue, you're not an outlier. You're just a person. You're mm -hmm. a regular person. And these problems are treatable, but they're regular people problems. Not that I'm not deminimizing them, but they're, they aren't exotic problems. You're not alone. You're not a freak. You're not, nothing's just wrong with you other than you have something that needs treatment. Mm -hmm. Just like, as you said, the common cold. Right. I, I believe that a lot, I, I agree with all of that. I believe that a lot of mental health issues have been normalized, that we are a sick culture in a lot of different ways. And we say, yeah, that's just life. Yeah, that's just normal. Uh, one of my personal concerns is a lack of positive role models, a lack of, and I too do a lot of work with the archetypes. What is that healthy archetype, that balance of strength and vulnerability, that balance of taking care of yourself and working and being happy? Because I'm not sure right now if we've got that, especially in the legal profession. That's a, that's a really great observation. And it's also, I think, one of the hardest problems to solve because essentially there has to be a lot of generational turnover. I think for the culture to change enormously in, in not just in terms of leadership of, of legal departments or, or law firms, but in terms of, you know, the, the, the median age, the average age of, of folks in the profession, um, increased diversity and and uh, just better representation of the general population. I think one of the things that makes makes the role model question so hard is we're still we're still fighting in the legal profession significant challenges with diversity and inclusion, yes. and that has just a ripple effect because if you don't have a great grasp on diversity and inclusion and you're not a diverse and inclusive organization then there are going to be there are going to be members of your community who feel isolated and alone and people who fight who feel isolated and alone are ripe to suffer depression or to potentially encounter substance abuse um, Isolation is one of the uh, most significant, a sense of isolation is one of the most significant contributors to depression. Hmm. Yeah. So what about moving kind of back down to the, not really the root cause, but you had mentioned the generational thing, and, and I do agree that there is a generational shift that is in the process of occurring and that continues to need to occur. During the very first, I think, sentence or two of the podcast, you talked about lawyers having things bred out of them. So, and I do agree from law school, you do kind of learn to be stoic and you do kind of learn how to be a lawyer. You know, not only are you learning to think like a lawyer and talk like a lawyer and write like a lawyer, but you're also learning to mimic that emotional state of a lawyer. 
And I'm curious if you have done any advocacy work at the law school level to maybe help break that mold going in to the profession. I personally haven't. I've been focused more in terms of both our podcast and my writing on the working professional, but there are a significant number of people who are really focusing resources on on sort of the law school precursor is what I call it, yes. which is that the breeding ground of law school is a precursor for some of the corrosive um, corrosive work environments that they may walk into post-graduation. There are a number of people who are writing openly about that. There was a pretty significant study showing the 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 depth of the mental health issues in in the law school population. And a lot of the law schools are starting to actually have wellness components to their curriculum and better programs for law school. And I think that is going to, again, that's going to have a ripple effect because as the law schools come to terms with this and address this, basically they're streaming into the next generation of lawyers, people who are by definition more fully emotionally who are more fully literate in emotional wellness and mental health because because it's being you know imbued and bred into them bred back into them at the law school level, which I think is is going to make a gigantic contribution to the wellness of the profession as that as the programs continue to grow right. Right. And I know same thing in the medical schools, you know, there's kind of been that whole push on compassion fatigue. It's a thing. Physicians get it. Let's address it. And, and I feel like across the board in many of these professions where the professional has to kind of hold him or herself out as the expert, the one who knows it all and does it all. I think across the board, we're doing a little bit better of a job. Yeah, and if you think about, you know, the 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 medical shows that we would see ten years ago that would create or conjure this image of the resident that would work three all-nighters, and you look at, you know, many states have now regulated just how much continuous time a resident can work, and come to the realization that it's not an innovative training program if you work people till they can't function, and so. Some of the residency programs have been structured to, you know, eliminate that idea that someone would be up three days straight, prescribing medicine, making decisions about treatment, perhaps using an, you know, invoking an invasive procedure. And I think that that is trickling down into the other professions as well, slowly but surely. I mean, there is now, I think, a better recognition that people aren't wired to function without sleep a better recognition that you cannot exist on chicken wings and beer and um, right. pizza as, 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 you know, in terms of long-term health. So we're getting there really slowly. And I think that, you know, professionally throughout the profession, there's an increasing awareness, but it's, it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of consistency and people pushing the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and and I definitely, myself personally, want to push the dialogue. I am a disruptor. I am a liberator. I want to change things. And that's kind of the perfect segue for the transition in my show. I want now to kind of walk you through the five steps of flaunt. 
And the five steps of flaunt is an acronym. It stands for find your fetish, laugh out loud, accept unconditionally, navigate the negative, and trust in your truth. And these are the five steps of the basis of all of my coaching program and the work that I do with people. And these are the five steps that I encourage people to do every day so they can reconnect with themselves, their heart, their head, their mental state, the way they feel physically, emotionally, mentally, and everything, so they can be more productive at work, so they can live a life of joy at home as well as at work. And what I'd like to do right now is go through step at a time and kind of ask you some questions about those different steps and see how they might apply to the legal profession and see how they might help erase the stigma and some create some more mental health. Does that sound sure. good? Perfect. It does. All right. The first step in flaunt is finding your fetish. And I define fetish in a couple of different ways. A fetish is something that we believe has magical powers, like Dumbo's feather. He didn't think he could fly unless he was hanging onto that feather. That feather was his fetish. And all of all humans, we have that thing outside of us that we imbue with power and authority and all that good stuff. And I'm also defining it as fetish, something that excites us and thrills us and that we would want to do, not because it makes us better, not because it pays us, but because we enjoy it. And I think it's really important to move into our joy, whether it's knitting or fishing or cooking. And I also think it's okay to have that feather to have that thing outside of us to anchor us into a little bit of magic and fun, and whether it's spirituality or whatever. And I just kind of want to have your take on finding your fetish in the legal profession. What is your fetish? How do you think lawyers can incorporate things that they enjoy into their everyday life? Well, I think that if you take the concept that Lawyers who love their job love advocating for their clients. Mm -hmm. You can you can you can take that and you can say, how can I take that joy and channel that into other rewarding things? So for me, I like mentoring younger lawyers and young professionals and working with them to help formulate strategies just because I've been in the profession for 30 years. And um, it feels good. When I was a young associate at the Cleveland firm, we were partners with a particular school in Cleveland and we went in and we read, we landscaped the school. I think that if you can find a way to share your joy for advocacy and communication and representation of someone's best interest and channel that into some type of service work outside the office, that there is enormous empowering joy in helping people and helping people that are not just clients, but just helping people who need help, who need, you know, a mentor, who need to hear a great voice, read a story, or need someone to teach them how to put together their resume or need help writing a cover letter, just the power of helping um, who, who, 
sending a personal handwritten note to someone you know could use some some emotional support just doing those things where you're giving of yourself without expectation mm-hmm. i think for the profession it's it, it's healing it's healing it's it's not quite so mercenary it's not quite so sterile it is actually a way to humanize you and and, and to be reminded that there is life outside of this bubble of of, of lawyers that you you affiliate yourself with mm-hmm I like that. And I also like that in terms of, you know, pro bono work. And for people who are non-lawyers listening to that, pro bono work is basically doing some legal work for free. And there's always that passion. We all have that passion, whether it's animal rights or working with kids or working with a different population. I think pro bono work, when you're doing it because you're passionate about it, feels good versus the kind of expectation or idea that, oh yeah, I've got to give away my free time. And that we can use it to nurture ourselves and to create better mental health if we're... Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's important. Um, My second step is laugh out loud. I fully believe in the healing power of laughter. I have read numerous studies on how it alleviates stress, how it connects us with other people. It's good physically, it's good mentally. But in a profession like the law, laughter is sometimes difficult. What is your take on laughter and how do you think we can infuse some more laughter and joy into the legal profession where big dollars and lives and important things are at stake? Well, I am a wholehearted supporter of laughter. Um, I think that laughter has such restorative powers. And um, occasionally I've been accused of being irreverent and inappropriate at times. But more, <laughs> but in truth, my view is if you add a little levity to even the grimace situation, you begin, you begin to unsilo that situation from the rest of the world. Once you infuse a little levity, all of a sudden you can see some sunlight, and, yes. and you can start to see sunlight. You can start to work your way out of very difficult circumstances. I have to be honest. I think one of the the greatest things in the world is YouTube, because let's face it, you don't have to you know laugh out loud or do a laughing exercise with your colleagues. If you have a favorite comedian or someone that just makes you laugh or something that makes you smile, you know, in five minutes, you can get a, you can get an infusion of humor. Uh, and, and that's a great thing. And, and that's the great thing about technology is, yes, there are issues with, it, with, with boundaries and there's issues with overconsumption, but anything properly calibrated and focused can be great. And you have access to things that make you laugh. Or things that make you just happy. Mm-hmm. Because just like you were talking about <laughs> the soul suckingness of a profession can be sometimes contagious. Joy and laughter is also contagious. So let's, yeah, let's make the fun and the joy and the laughter contagious instead of the depressive soul sucking nature of oppressive work. Yeah, we don't have to focus on the worst elements of the situation we're in. No, and it's not denial to not dwell on the the adverse factors. 
it's denial when you when you think that that's the only thing you should think about. Yes, yes. And that is the perfect segue to the next step, AU, which is the golden center of flaunt. And that is accept unconditionally. It doesn't matter what profession you're in or what marriage you're in or what relationship you're in. There are good moments and there are bad moments. There are model clients and there are horrific clients. There are good judicial decisions. There are horrific ones. I think getting caught up, I, I'm big into yoga, but it's that non-attachment. Getting caught up and getting attached to every single decision or to every single negative thing that happens is so unhealthy. And I know a lot of lawyers pride themselves on the number of hours they bill or the number of cases that they win. There's good ones and there's bad ones. And I really think that power of accepting unconditionally the good or the bad does not change who I am is very healing. But I'm not sure if that belief is very prevalent. And I would just love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, it's not very prevalent. And there's a another author you're you're one of the authors i read there's another author who, who uses the phrase it comes from stoicism accept everything expect nothing and that is you know that is kind of the the quintessential quintessential uh, tenet of stoicism right yes the only thing you have control of is yourself and you know the more lawyers realize that there are countless and infinite number of variables they cannot control for all they can control is their reaction and that that they cannot expend energy trying to ruminate over things they have no control over is a, is a huge step forward it, it, but but it's that unconditional release that acknowledgement that you that there are things in the universe you can't control. The only thing you control is your perception of things. Yeah. And that is infinitely customizable should you choose to do it. Yes. You don't have to perceive or process information a certain way. You have the power to reprogram yourself, to read, to work with coaches, to be aware to meditate, to do yoga, whatever it takes to step outside of that, um, that, that feeling that perception is a reflex. I think Dan Harris in his book, 10% Happier, talks about meditation and he talks about kind of looking behind the waterfall and mm. watching the water flow. You're able to step outside yourself and look behind the waterfall. And I think that's what, you know, we strive to, achieve and to have others achieve is the ability to kind of step back and realize that a perception is something that they shape. It's not done to them. It's something that they shape. And that's just, that's just a really, really hard concept to get around. But the folks that embrace that mm -hmm. tend to accept everything, expect nothing and be more effective because they're not dissipating their energy on things that they absolutely cannot change. So they're focusing on things they can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think there's some things in the legal profession that make that difficult, such as if you are taking cases, there will be a winner, there will be a loser. 
negotiating is great, mediating is great, but even when you negotiate or mediate and come up with a settlement, usually you know a good settlement is when neither party is happy. And there is a lot of that win-lose in the legal profession, and I do think that mentally is difficult. And I would think having a lot of resources and conversation just around that might help people have a better understanding that losing a case does not mean they're a loser. It doesn't. And it doesn't mean that they didn't do a great job either. No. It means that on those particular facts in front of that particular judge, given um, the composition of the case, it just wasn't possible to win it. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, it's not a question of being being satisfied with, with losing. That's not it. No one likes to lose. But no, it's a of question not. of understanding that these things happen and that the idea that you'll never lose is a myth because someone always loses. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, so if, if you think you always win, then by definition, someone loses, which means there's going to be a winner and a loser. And I think that that is really where you know, we continually work to help people be more mindful, but it goes beyond sort of the cliche of helping people be more mindful. We're constantly raising awareness as we talk about mental health, and substance abuse, that when external, when you allow external variables to control your behavior, it often has terrible consequences. Yeah. I mean, if you, and you know, I mean, the serenity prayer, you know, came, you know, you know, there's a the central notion, you know, you, you accept what you cannot change and you work on what you can change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that moves kind of right into the next tenant is navigate the negative. And when I work with people, I always talk about things happen, whether you perceive it or as negative or positive, that's kind of part of the equation, but you will find things that you perceive as negative. And the choice is quitting, giving up, or navigating around it. And there are so many ways to navigate the negative. And I would just love to hear some of your top tips for navigating the negative. Well, that's a great point because in every situation where there's negative, there's an opportunity to be fluid and responsive and develop adaptive strategies, which I think is one of the most important elements of good lawyering is to be adaptive. And I think the same holds true with the circumstances and pressures and stress that we face. For me, my my way of being adaptive is when I'm traveling and under stress is to explore new fitness studios, to get online body and find a local spinning studio or a local um, uh, yoga studio or some way to to navigate the fact that I'm on the road and not home. I don't have full control of my diet by sharing someone's community, um, feeling, um, feeling the collective energy of a group. Um, the other thing is, you know, really trying to carve out a moment when I'm on the road to, you know, savor the scenery or enjoy like a, a bit of a local culture or local food to to really kind of kind of find a way to stimulate and awaken my senses by forcing myself to do something different. And it's like I'm, I'm on this every Saturday after I do my yoga class, 
I'm going to a new coffee house in Richmond, Virginia, where I live. Ooh. And the reason is my, my wife said to me, where are you? And I said, I'm at this coffee house. And she said, oh, how come? I said, well, I'm trying not to go to the same place to get coffee every Saturday because all of a sudden I don't even know if there's, you know, interesting places out there. And she's like, you know, that's pretty funny. That's really, it's a really great idea. And so the reason is because Richmond's a really neat city. There's a lot of cool architecture. There's a lot of entrepreneurs doing cool businesses. And so I'm forcing myself to get out of my routine of going to the same place and having the same thing. And I think when people realize that there are opportunities to break the cycle, whether it be by taking a class or whether it be by going to a free concert if they have a spare moment or, or something that's just different to to allow them to break that cycle of um, rumination. You know, we get these ideas in our head, we ruminate, we're traveling, or we're working really hard in these these stressors kind of cycle like a flywheel. And when we do things to break that up, again, it, cre- it, it, it creates space because it breaks, breaks the clouds apart is the way I view it and gives you a chance to see some sunshine. Yes, I love that. And, and it is, it, it's absolutely true. So here's a question too that I was thinking about. One of the things with the legal profession is billable hours. And yes, we have to bill out billable hours so we know what to charge the client. But at the same time, you cannot bill all of your hours. And then there's kind of the admin hours and they're non-billables. And, and I know billable hours create so much stress, both for the lawyer and for the client. But that's one of those things that is kind of seen as a negative by a lot of people in the profession but it's a necessary evil. And do you have any tips for navigating something like that, that you have to accept unconditionally that you need to bill hours, but how do you navigate that? Well, first and foremost, I want to say as a person that works with legal departments to look at technology and different staffing models, I'll say this. I think the billable hour will eventually become less relevant when we get better at data analytics, we get better at applying technology and blending all of those together so that work can be predictable and driven by value rather than what I call force times mass, which is um, hours times rates equals X. So I think that, I think the convergence of technology, um, mental and emotional wellness strategies, as well as continuing to refine the metrics practicing law will ultimately make a difference and make the billable hour less relevant. The one thing I think is really important if you live in the billable hour world is to be conscious of how you're spending your time. Because too often this culture, this sort of victim culture of we're all overworked, we're overstressed, um, it's terrible here, or so-and-so is doing this, or so-and-so is doing that, the, the whole sort of water cooler um, yes. syndrome, that when we channel our energy into things that don't enrich our soul, don't benefit our clients, but feed that negative energy that that makes us less energetic, by feeding negative energy, we have less positive energy, 
we're not as clear mentally. I think that the billable hour becomes really onerous when it's hard anyway. Let's not let's not kid ourselves, but it becomes even more onerous when you're having to catch up for lost time because you got caught up in the cafeteria or the coffee room just talking about nothing substantial. Right. Not meaningful social interaction, not positive thinking, not, you know, advancing any purpose other than sort of funneling energy into this negative energy capsule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that absolutely is true. Now rolling right into the last letter T of flaunt. That is trust in your truth. And I loved how you just were talking about doing things to feed your soul versus funneling that energy into that negative capsule. Because I don't think most of us are negative, grouchy, awful people who love to feel bad and to feel victimized every day. I I think most of us grew up with this idea that we would go to law school and we would save the world or we would do something grand and glorious and wonderful. Nobody as a kid thinks I'm going to grow up and have a horrible life. So when I talk about trusting your truth, it's really rewinding, centering back into who you were when you were projecting forward into life and trusting that that is your truth. That is how you want to live. That is how you want to show up at home. You know, you were talking about exploring coffee shops, fitness studios. There's some of that curiosity. You know, your truth might be an explorer, a connector, a change agent. I think there's such power in returning to your truth and then carrying that truth forward into your chosen profession, whether it's positive, negative, or somewhere in between, and going back to that truth and always saying, this is what I need to do to move my truth forward to create change for everybody else. So first, I want to ask you, Mark, what is your truth and how through all the different iterations of your life and your career, have you been able to bring the truth of who you are forward? I think that for me, the truth is that I am a communicator and a storyteller and a nurturer. So throughout my career, I have tried to be a good mentor, be a good teacher, and to create circumstances where people can advance and they can come into their own. They can do what I call finding their own voice. So when I was at the firm and we built one of the first e-discovery practices in the country, we created a very robust financial engine. But just as importantly, there are a generation of lawyers working with big firms, major companies, major alternative legal services providers that came through our system. And it's because we gave them tools and training. We gave them the freedom to fail. And we gave them the confidence to go out there and do really some audacious things. And so for me, the ability to create a narrative to make make the power of story concepts accessible and to use the written and spoken word to help people find themselves and feel better to contribute to their 
positive dialogue has been something that I've tried to bring across everywhere I've worked, whether it's through panel discussions, articles, presentations, or I write, you know, roughly 120 to 150 personal notes at the end of every year. Mm-hmm. I start really in November, and I try to make each one have something unique to the person receiving it. Um, and, and and so for me, the fact that people really appreciate that not only makes me feel good, but I know that I've sent them something that shows they're cared about. And I think that's how I've tried to live my truth throughout my career. Sometimes better than others, but nevertheless, the feeling that you're you're helping people develop often makes what you're doing worth it. Yes. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That's Yes, that's very true. And I think if that can be nurtured and encouraged, it seems like you have encouraged others to do that. You know, when you say giving people the grace to fail, that is encouraging that truth. And I do believe we're talking about diversity and inclusion. That helps make us all stronger. That helps make us all better. So how do you see that as moving forward into the legal profession? Do you think that's kind of part of this erasing the stigma is allowing people to move into their truth, to try to fail. Oh yeah, it it definitely is. And that's why diversity and inclusion is so, so important in our profession because it's not only necessary that we have a diverse population of lawyers of all types of diversity, but that the, diverse people we bring into the profession feel comfortable being who they are personally, culturally, in every way, that we're not taking diverse people and then trying to, or asking them or creating an environment where they don't feel where they can be themselves, where they have to conform to an archetype or stereotype. So it's about both having a diverse population, but also creating a culture where individuality within the within the fabric of a, a team framework is accepted that those differences and people sharing their culture and being who they are makes right. us all better so it's really critical it's really really critical yeah mark i really want to thank you from the bottom of my former attorney heart <laughs> for the work that you're doing because It's only through this type of conversation, through pushing the envelope a little bit, through some of this honest communication that the professional will change. And no, we can't change it all at once, but like you said, it's culturally we're changing. From the law school we're changing, generationally we're changing. And I just really wanted to thank you for your bravery for starting to talk about it because as A man who is in the profession, you could have been rejected and excluded and told you were crazy for doing this, and it could have potentially taken your career down. So thank you for being brave, for being the voice, and for putting yourself out there and for letting people know this is normal. You are not abnormal. Here are some options. Look at me. Let's bring all these people together. So thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share 
what we're doing is a recruiting firm to talk about mental health issues and to give me an opportunity to share some of my own insights and views. I would say this, I, 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 am, I am not a particularly brave soul and part of a community of people who feel that they're at a point in their life, wherever they are in their life, that it's important to step into the light and to talk. So I think there's a lot of collective energy out there that makes us all collectively brave. And um, to, to the folks I've met who advocate for mental wellness, to authors like you I've met who are willing to talk about self-acceptance and embracing who you really are, I have a huge debt of gratitude because that's created a climate where we could begin to become participants in the dialogue. And it's been very, very gratifying to meet people. And I think you and your husband were a recipient of one of my famous notes, if I recall. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, thank you again. And listeners, whether you were in the legal profession, whether you were in another profession, or whether you were in no profession at all, and you were listening to the show and you were thinking of it in terms of families and relationships. This applies to everyone. There are the parameters and the constraints in every profession. Mental health is something we all need to talk about. If you need to reach out to Mark or to me, please do so. We are both happy to talk to you, to answer some questions, to provide resources to you. I will put all of his contact information in the show notes. Have a fantastic, amazing week. And as usual, don't forget to flaunt. Tune in next time to flaunt. Build your dreams. Live your sparkle with radio host Laura Cheadle every Wednesday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on syndicated Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. Come release self-judgment, reveal your naked self-worth, and re-choreograph a life filled with joy. Flaunt. Find your fetish, laugh out loud, accept unconditionally, navigate the negative, and trust in your truth. Find out more at lauracheadle.com. That's L-O-R-A-C-H-E-A-D-L-E.com. 